Hello and welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Entertainment Weekly's TV critic, Jeff Jensen. And I am a senior writer for Entertainment Weekly, Darren Franich. And you are listening to a podcast that exists solely for the purpose of understanding, decoding, geeking out, and appreciating the awesome thing that is Twin Peaks. It's coming back to Showtime in a a revival series on May 21st, and we're going to kick things off with this podcast by digging into Seasons 1, Seasons 2, and the Twin Peaks movie, the prequel movie, Fire Walk With Me. But today, Darren, we're going to focus on Season 1. And before we dig into all the particulars of Season 1, I just kind of love to know, from your perspective, how did you get into Twin Peaks? How did you discover Twin Peaks? Because I think that when the show pre premiered in 1990, you were uh, still in diapers? Let me tell you, if I had been cool enough to watch Twin Peaks when it first aired, I would have been the coolest kid in my kindergarten class. Uh, No, I am like probably uh, many people listening to us right now in that my whole story of discovering Twin Peaks involves turning on Netflix and watching Twin Peaks. Um, Like a lot of pop-culturally minded people, I experienced it initially through osmosis. Many of the things that I loved in the 1990s from The X-Files up through some of the great, surreal, fantastical TV shows of the 2000s, like Lost and the later seasons of Sopranos, were very influenced by it. As an active reader of the Entertainment Weekly magazine, I actually learned pretty much every plot point about Twin Peaks before I ever watched it. I'm guessing that was mainly stuff that you were writing in the early 2000s about Twin Peaks, Jeff. So (laughs) I came to it very gradually, and only about two or three years ago did I finally start watching it. And, And by no means did I I binge it. It was a very kind of long, gradual experience. But Jeff, uh, what about you? Uh, You were not in kindergarten when Twin Peaks first aired. How did you kind of first experience it, you know, when it was on television? I was in college. I was 20 years old. I was already a pop culture soaked person, and I was already a huge David Lynch fan. But I was also just a big watcher of television all of my life. And, you know, when we usually tell the story about Twin Peaks and the influence that it had on television, we often kind of, you know, make it sound like it was the big bang of something or there was it was an act of punctuated equilibrium that came out of nowhere and evolved TV forward. But the truth is, is that if you were watching a lot of TV through the 70s and the 80s, the arrival of Twin Peaks in 1990 felt, to me at least, like the culmination of something. Like, I was ready for this thing. And for me, Twin Peaks airing in the spring of 1990 was this huge event for me. I watched the pilot, and I when I watched the pilot, like I took notes because I was so galvanized. And the, the thing that captured my imagination, I remember vividly, was the ad campaign that very marketed very aggressively and maybe rather fatefully the Who Killed Laura Palmer mystery. So I really thought that what we were going to get was this elaborate whodunit, and that if you followed all the clues, you can solve the mystery. So I was like really into it. And I was religiously devoted to it. The way that someone like me experiences this show, even putting aside the phenomenon and history of it all, is, you know, essentially streaming. And you could argue that, you know, is this the most ideal way to watch something? There are no commercials. You know, it's not airing before or after whatever, you know, TV series it was airing around at that time. But at the same time, I do find it so interesting and so compelling, especially in light of how cinema and how television would change in the decades to follow it. This idea of an auteur on the level of David Lynch producing something that seems to me to really wonderfully live in that space. Like I feel as if that is the ideal way to watch it, to be watching it on a kind of crappy TV set with rabbit ears and what sounds like everybody you know being arranged in a very like feng shui style sitting position or, or, around the room. Um, I've been to know Jeff, like you've obviously had uh, a very long time to marinate on the show and you've done so much reporting on the upcoming season 
season of the show that we're going to get to in a few weeks' time. Um, what to you is the sort of significance of the show today? I mean, like, how do you kind of approach it when you're kind of going back to rewatch this first season? You know, what's your kind of thesis statement, if you will, about the meaning of Twin Peaks, just to go as cosmic as possible right here at the beginning? Well, to go big picture and then narrow down, I mean, I just the significance of Twin Peaks to today's TV um, media landscape is that it was a show that influenced so much of TV today. It was serialized TV before serialized TV. TV. It was mystery-driven entertainment before mystery-driven entertainment. It was this weird, eclectic, tonal mix of melodrama and pulp and supernatural mystery and absurd comedy that we see so often in today's sort of rather surreal, strange, quirky, prestige TV stuff. And of course, just a bottom line at all, it had David Lynch and this auteur showrunner who was bringing all of his personal fixations and all the artistic tools in his cinematic paint kit to create this very distinctive, very personal, very stylish, very moody TV show. That was really groundbreaking at the time. It had a huge influence on so many shows, so many up-and-coming people who would create so much of the TV that we love today, from David Chase to Damon Lindelof, who's doing The Leftovers, to uh, Sam Esman, who does Mr. Robot, and to so much more. So it's just fascinating to me, me to see David Lynch return to TV and give us more Twin Peaks in his own distinctive storytelling style and participating in and maybe even competing with today's sort of very auteur-minded prestige TV and see if like if he has something to say, if it holds up, if it can help push everything forward. Um, so I'm very fascinated about this sort of artistic, formal, you know, meta kind of story of Twin Peaks that's going to play out. Like, can David Lynch participate and compete in a, a sort of pop culture arena that he helped create, you know? In terms of the story itself, you know, Twin Peaks, as we're about to discuss, is just so nutty, so crazy, so all over the place. I don't come to this show really dying to know all the answers to all the unresolved mysteries and cliffhangers that Twin Peaks left with us. I kind of don't really relate to it on that level. I relate it to the level of, I really admire David Lynch. I want to see what, you know, 18 hours of David Lynch narrative looks like right now. I'm really excited about that. But I think I'm also really interested in what he has to say right now and what he has to what he's going to do in the realm of mystery serials. But it's also something of a controversial thing right now at a time where um, a lot of critics and even some audiences are a little bit exhausted by mystery fatigue and, and people are guessing the answers to mysteries, you know, by episode two, like see Westworld. It's going to be interesting. I'm not exactly sure if David Lynch gives us those kinds of mysteries, but it's going to be really interesting to see how it participates in that kind of world and whether critics will embrace it, whether audiences will embrace it, or if, if it'll almost be like the peak of mystery serial exhaustion, if, if, if you know what I mean there. And separately, you know, like on the theme of mystery, you know, um, and we've talked about this offline but David Lynch just loves, he has this romance with mystery, but he tells us stories about people that are sort of burned by mystery. And I think that's kind of uh, the story of Twin Peaks, if you will, back in the day, a show that captured our imagination with all these glittering mysteries and then kind of left us hanging and kind of uh, burned us with some of its mysteries. And, and it, you see almost that story reflected in the story of Twin Peaks itself. So I'm interested in seeing kind of like where David Lynch's attitudes about mystery rest right now in the new show. If all of that makes sense to you, Darren. That makes sense to me. And, you know, what I've been kind of telling people is that this is maybe the best time to ever start watching Twin Peaks because it seems to me as if so much of its legacy, certainly through the 90s and into the 2000s, was kind of this notion of, you know, this was a show that started off so well and then seemed to wander off course and seemed to lose track of itself. And, you know, as you were kind of speaking to, Jeff, this idea of some mysteries that don't get solved or get solved in a disappointing way, this is really encroaching on this new era where any mystery thriller type TV show kind of gets 
pegged with this notion of will it stick the landing and will the kind of final act pay off everything and to me knowing that Twin Peaks is not that interested in that or that certainly David Lynch himself was not as interested in that as some of his other collaborators were makes it a really refreshing viewing experience today I mean for anyone who's been perhaps a little bit tired of just how kind of plotty a lot of mystery serialized storylines have become you know this is a show that wanders into tangents and past a certain point the tangents really seem to be the point and that can be frustrating at times we'll, we'll get to more of that next week when we talk about season two but it can also be really energizing and just on a on, on a deep level, I find that this show has something that defines all of David Lynch's work, which, which is that it works on just a beautifully sensual level, on the level of just, you know, creating visuals and moments that you can't really find anywhere else. Um, and, you know, just on that note, what the show really digs into for me is this fascination with, as much as, as it's a fascination with mystery, there's something about, like, just America that is stamped across this show that I find is simultaneously very archaic, but almost purposefully archaic. I mean, so many elements of it seem very much rooted in this Lynchian wonderland of the 1950s and and the mid-century, and then kind of the way that that encroaches into this sense of almost eternal supernatural darkness is something that I find fascinating and that plays out in the show, even when it sort of wanders off of the initial mystery of who killed Laura Palmer and who was Laura Palmer. But Jeff, before we get to that, let's dig into something very specific here, which is the pilot for Twin Peaks. I I would say, somewhat indisputably, one of the best pilots ever produced for television. I was just rewatching the pilot again this morning, Jeff, and it is incredible to me just how completely it creates this whole world in a very short span of time and how it brings you into the world of Twin Peaks. What are kind of your, like, most vivid memories of watching the pilot and what kind of jumps out to you the most about what will come to define this show and the and the phenomenon of the show well first and foremost what comes to mind is maybe not necessarily the first thing that should come to mind which is the great creation that is Kyle McLaughlin's agent Dale Cooper who comes in actually pretty late in the pilot what 20 30 minutes into the show you know Lynch and his co-creator Mark Frost introduce you to the misty mountain log town of Twin Peaks and introduces you to a wide variety of characters as well as the central mystery of the death of this teenage beauty queen Laura Palmer And then 20, 30 minutes into it, we actually get the real defining hero, FBI agent Cooper, coming into town, talking into his tape recorder, addressing Diane and marveling at the landscape of the Pacific Northwest. And we were introduced to this great, quirky, Dudley do-right, but almost super cool FBI detective. And that's the first thing that totally comes to mind when I think about Twin Peaks. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day, weatherman said rain. You get paid that kind of money for being wrong 60% of the time and be working. Mileage is 79,345, gauges on reserve, riding on fumes here. I got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was a tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Okay. I'll be meeting up with the uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. We'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. Guess we're going to go up to intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. When I finish here, I'll be checking into a motel. I'm sure the sheriff will be able to recommend a clean place, reason the Christ. That's what I need. A clean place, reason the Christ. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. They're really something. 
Darren, the other thing I would say that when I reflect on Twin Peaks and what I loved about Twin Peaks, more than maybe even just being completely gripped by the mystery and by the hero of Agent Cooper, just this accumulation of all of these delightful, wonderful, weird, strange, hilarious David Lynch moments. And I came to Twin Peaks as a fan of Blue Velvet, which has a lot of similarities to Twin Peaks in some ways. And something that you said that was really interesting to me about how you really relate to Twin Peaks as sort of this rather surreal, subversive portrait of America. You know, Blue Velvet was very similar in that great opening scene where this this montage set to the song Blue Velvet and the camera kind of looks at all of these idyllic suburban uh, lawns and houses, but then it pans down below the surface of all the well-manicured lawns and we get into the soil and we see all of these ants fighting with each, with each other in the, in the dirt, whatever, and this sort of great allegory of everything great on top, but really seedy and sinister and evil below. And Twin Peaks is completely steeped in that ethos. Um, and Agent Cooper, in some ways, is like the hero of Blue Velvet, Jeffrey Beaumont, like all grown up and now being kind of like a, a detective on his own and, and pursuing that as a career. In addition to all of that, all these awesome Lynchian moments, that great, absurd, deadpan humor. I love the way that the log lady is introduced with Cooper kind of saying, who's the lady with the log? We call her the log lady. <laughs> I just love stuff like that. And just how Lynch embraces randomness and accidents in his filmmaking rather famously. The amazing scene where, you know, Cooper and Sheriff Truman, who are a great pair, great tandem from the start in this show, are in the morgue and they are uh, working with the body of Laura Palmer and Cooper sees something underneath her fingernails and that, oh, that disturbing shot of him pushing his tweezers underneath his fingernails and withdrawing that tiny little letter that's a clue left behind by the serial killer. But you have this fritzing light that's going on in this room. And famously, of course, when they were setting up this shot, the lights were fritzing and they couldn't get them stabilized. And Lynch was like, no, this is perfect. Let's keep it. But even Agent Cooper's dialogue with the morgue guy down there, where he asks him to leave and give him the room, and the guy mishears Cooper and like identifies himself by name, and Cooper says, no, 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 can you please leave? That was a complete accident that happened on set that Lynch decided to keep, but it's a perfect example of that sort of like Lynchian comedy. Just stuff like that, just captured my imagination within this kind of seamless, varied tapestry of mystery that is told with this great, the music, the images, the cinematography, it all just kind of flowed so beautifully. I was just captivated by it. What strikes me upon rewatching the pilot is there's just some of Lynch's just most perfect filmmaking. One thing that I always remember, uh, Jeff, and which, you know, speaks to the other side of the show, if you kind of have this incredible Lynchian deadpan humor, there are also moments that are very moving and very emotional and almost feel as if there is an, an embrace of his, you know, natural sentimentality in a way that like even in some of his best films, you don't quite get as much of um, the scene where you kind of first go to the high school. In hindsight, one of the few times that this show will spend any time at high school, um, you sort of get this great scene where most of the high school kids are in the same classroom and then a policeman walks in and is kind of whispering something to the teacher. And what he's whispering to her is, of course, that Laura Palmer has died. But you get this close up on her best friend, Donna, played by Laura Flynn Boyle. And she kind of senses something is wrong, sees the policeman whispering. And although she can't hear what he's whispering, right outside at that moment, another girl from the high school runs screaming past the window. And then, you know, she looks over and sees that Laura isn't at her desk. And there's just this incredible sense of both this character specifically and the whole town just realizing what has happened. It's as if Laura Palmer's death is this wave that is just breaking over everyone for the first half hour of, of the episode. And I find that, you know, if there are great, delightful, humorous moments in Twin Peaks, there are also these intensely emotionally invigorating moments. And I, I just think that with this pilot, you just have this incredible filmmaking sensibility applied to it. At the same time... Um, 
as much as the mystery of this show is so wonderful and as much as like Dale Cooper kind of symbolizes the, the, the mystery of that, the pairing of him with Sheriff Harry S. Truman, played by Michael Antkeen, I, I always think is very key to understanding the mystique of this show because, you know, in many ways, Cooper is the more memorable and more showy figure. But, you know, like Antkeen as an actor, he just gives this great sense of like the American stand-up man and the fact that he's named after, you know, mid-century president really brings that home. Their kind of first scene together where Cooper is kind of giving Truman the rundown of, all right, like, uh, you know, here's what the case is. And, you know, just so you know, like the FBI is going to be in charge and I hope that's okay. And it's very serious. And then suddenly Kyle McLaughlin gets the goofiest smile on his face and says, what kind of fantastic trees have you got growing around here? Big, majestic. And I feel like to understand and love this show, you have to love that sort of mystery of it and also understand that there'll be a lot of tangents about trees along the way, too. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more. That is one of my favorite moments in that pilot. I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record here because every time you're going to throw out a moment in that pilot, I'm going to say, oh, that's my favorite moment. But they're meeting in that hallway where it's like, they have this like uh, somewhat warm introduction to each other and they're walking down the hallway and Agent Cooper says, Sheriff Truman, let me stop you right here in the hallway and just talk to you for a second about kind of like parliamentary politics between, you know, the feds and local law enforcement. And like sometimes in situations like these, there's some resentment between the federal officers like coming in and taking over the case. And Sheriff Truman is like, yeah, that's not going to be a big deal. <laughs> I just love how they dispense with that kind of like the, that, that tension, that plot is just not going to be part of this show. I just love how they deal with that. But there's something else that you mentioned about that wonderful high school scene that there was another beat in that scene that I remember, and it kind of goes to what a gutsy director I think that ultimately David Lynch is in terms of giving us moments like these where, yeah, you, you have this wonderfully almost nonverbal way in which the visual storytelling is just capturing the news spreading throughout the school that Laura Palmer is dead and capturing the shattering grief that all of a sudden everyone is experiencing. But then you get that shot where Donna looks over to James and he's got a pencil in his hand and he breaks it all of a sudden, you know, like, do, do you remember that moment? <laughs> Of course. Yeah. And that moment on on one level is totally ridiculous and totally extreme and slightly comic. But somehow David Lynch just kind of knows he, he loves that stuff. And within scenes like that, he loves to give you a variety of almost different kinds of tones. And he knows just how far to play it before it just stops working. And the fact that he has the boldness and give us that shot and go for something like that and kind of know how to shoot it, how to play it, how to direct his actor to execute it and how to cut it so that it works is just remarkable. And, and, and maybe the best classic searing moment in the pilot that captures that brilliantly is the moment where Leland is on the phone with Laura's mom, Sarah, right? Played by uh, Grace uh, Zabriskie. Right. Yeah. This And uh, and she's on the phone and she knows something is just going absolutely wrong. And as we get deeper into the series, we understand why. And then she's like screaming Leland's name. And then she's just wailing and just wailing. And you know that like behind the scenes, like Lynch is just directing her to go for it. And then you cut back to the Great Northern Lodge and Leland is watching the police officers drive up and approach him now. And we just cut to that phone and that long, slow shot of going down the cord toward the phone that he's dropped. And we hear Mrs. Palmer just screaming through it. We cut back to her and she's just like this raw mess of emotion. And in that moment, Darren, I don't know how you felt about that, but it's absolutely terrifying, chilling, heartbreaking, funny, inappropriately funny, like all at once. It's almost like you're feeling all the feels and then checking down on that and kind of go like, is it okay for me to feel all the feels, including comedy here? Like it is brilliant that he knew how to direct that and put that all together. It's, it's genius. 
genius. And in, in some respects, one way of discussing the pilot is almost to discuss it as an interesting problem as the show goes on, because moments like that work on so many different emotional registers and speak to what makes Lynch utterly unique, that there is this sensibility that almost approaches camp and melodrama with a very different, much more you know, unique and personal and phantasmagoric vision. And a scene like that that brings them all together is beautiful. And then one issue going forward is, all right, if that's our tone, what do we do? Do we hit that every time? Do we try to hit just one of those? If we hit just one of those, are we kind of missing out somehow? Speaking of this total theme of directing your actors and to go big and go with the extremes, let's talk about another episode from season one, the only other episode that David Lynch directed in this sort of eight-part mini-season of season one, which is the episode that we now call Zen or The Skill to Catch a Killer, which is another episode that's just 44 minutes of just pure Lynch genius. And of course, the thing that we're going to have to talk about here in a second is the Red Room dream sequence that ends the show and introduces us to the Black Lodge mythology, which will ultimately kind of define a lot of Twin Peaks as we move forward. But there is a great, funny scene in this episode that has a classic behind-the-scenes story to it, which is the scene that introduces you know, Benjamin Horn's brother, Jerry Horn. And Ben is having dinner with his family, and Jerry comes in, and he brings in these from this business trip abroad from France, I believe, and he's brought back all of these baguettes. And these two skeevy, sinister brothers like bond almost like in a real subversive twisted fashion over eating these sandwiches and they just start eating them and eating them in front of everyone and they're just going for it. They're stuffing their mouth with these sandwiches and try to say their lines through mouthfuls of food and it's absolutely ridiculous and absurd. Brother Ben, this is the best damn sandwich I ever ate. It's a baguette with brie and butter. I had four of these damn things every day I was there. You gotta try this here, go ahead. Eat it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Mmm. 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 That is an incredible job. Mmm. You know what this reminds us of? Mmm. You know what we like this? It reminds us of Jimmy and Jenny down by the river. Hmm? Oh my God. You're right. Am I right? Am I right? Hmm? Oh, no wonder. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> And the funny behind-the-scenes story about that, which uh, is chronicled in this great Twin Peaks book that I'm going to plug right now, The Essential Wrapped in Plastic, Pathways to Twin Peaks by John Thorne. Uh, it talks about how uh, like the, the actor who played Ben Horn, you know, he was like, David, you want me to do what? You want me to eat this sandwich? Like, But my character is like this businessman in an Armani suit and he's kind of sophisticated like why would he do something so crude and so ridiculous like talk through with all this food in his mouth and so when he initially started playing the scene he wouldn't go to those extremes and play the absurdity of the comedy and after every take Lynch would say cut no 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 like go bigger go more extreme. So the actor would do it again, but there was something that inside him that was short-circuiting. He just wouldn't go there. And they had to do it a lot of times before Lynch got a take that he really liked. And now we watch that scene, we laugh really, really hard. But what's interesting is that this actor kind of looks back and he remembers on this and he goes, you know, I could have gone bigger. I never went big enough because I was so scared of where Lynch was taking me and that it wasn't right for the scene. But now I look at that scene and kind of go, that guy knows exactly what he's doing. If the pilot didn't sell me, this episode did. There's so many scenes that we could talk about. My favorite scene in all of Twin Peaks remains Agent Cooper's mystic Tibetan technique in which he winnows down a list of suspects by throwing rocks at a bottle in a forest. 
And the comedy of that scene, it's, it's just bizarre. It's funny. And yet it works. I completely believe that there's actually something going on with Agent Cooper's detective technique there. <laughs> By way of explaining what we're about to do, I am first going to tell you a little bit about the country called Tibet. An extremely spiritual country. For centuries, the leader of Tibet has been known as the Dalai Lama. In 1950, communist China invaded Tibet. And while leaving the Dalai Lama nominally in charge, they in fact seized control of the entire country. In 1959, after a Tibetan uprising against the Chinese, the Dalai Lama was forced to flee to India for his life and has lived in exile ever since. Following a dream I had three years ago, I have become deeply moved by the plight of the Tibetan people and filled with a desire to help them. I also awoke from the same dream, realizing that I had subconsciously gained knowledge of a deductive technique involving mind-body coordination operating hand-in-hand -hand with the deepest level of intuition. Sheriff, Deputy Hawk, if you will please assist me, I will now demonstrate. You will recall on the day of her death, Laura Palmer wrote the following entry in her diary. Nervous about meeting Jay tonight. Today, we're going to concentrate on the Jays. Harry, when I give the word, would you please read aloud each of the names I've written on the blackboard? Okie doke. Deputy Hawk, stand over here and hold this bucket of rocks up near me where I can get to them. Would you please put on the kitchen mittens? Deputy Andy, move down, stand by the bottle. Sheriff, I almost forgot. When you say the name, also briefly state that person's relationship to Laura Palmer. Ready? Ready. What strikes me so much, and I know that you've kind of talked about this before, Jeff, there's an element of Dale Cooper as an investigator, which I find so compelling, which is that he is this sort of perfect vision by a filmmaker who's very interested in mystery and very interested in the idea of investigating mystery. He's this image of a lawman as this remarkably holistic and childishly gleeful, just absorbent sponge mind. He seems to, you know, we're so used to the idea now of the sort of noir detective who's sort of overflowing with grief and with melancholy and all this. And although Cooper... There are elements of that with him that come to the fore later. What strikes me so much about the scene that I love is just the excitement of it and the way in which his belief in the technique makes you believe in the technique. I sort of feel as if one of the things that's so wonderful about Twin Peaks and its relationship to mystery, especially when it's kind of refracted through the specific directorial lens of David Lynch, is that he is very much interested in solving something, but he wants to solve it in an, an almost ambient fashion. You know, again, to think about what this show could do when it was doing exactly what it was setting out to do, I feel like that scene jumps out to me so, so much. Along the same lines, there's another scene in the episode that speaks to what I think you're talking about, Jeff. Um, in the same episode, there's this incredible scene where we're at the Double R Diner and where uh, Audrey and Donna are sort of having a, a brief conversation. And, you know, they are talking about Laura Palmer and their both specific kind of relationship to her. And then all of a sudden, Audrey seems to suddenly hear Angelo Badalamenti's music on the soundtrack. I think she says something about how she, you know, she she kind of loves this song and just gets up and starts kind of dancing, but kind of just more doing this very uh, you know, late period Terrence Malick, like half swirl almost. And the camera just <laughs> very gradually seems to sort of like like tilt upwards, so it's going above her. And it's a scene that works on a visceral level that is in no way, shape, or form reducible to a plot element and you know if if you're looking for it and and certainly i've had moments with this show where i am like digging deep for resonance you know you can say oh like is her dance there somehow related in a sort of ambient way to the dance that the man from the other place will do later in the episode that's the kind of scene where i'm like i cannot tell you why audrey dancing is one of my favorite scenes ever but it is unquestionably just something that sticks in your mind and i think that's why maybe episode three even more so than the pilot is just this 
primary example of what Twin Peaks could be. We're past the point of it setting things in motion, and now things are just in eternal motion, which I find so compelling. You know what's actually happening in that scene, though, Darren? In that scene, that conversation between Audrey and Donna... Audrey is ruminating about her instant crush on Agent Cooper, and she just kind of finds him like really dreamy and really sexy, and she's kind of lost in reverie about him. And like Donna kind of finds this somewhat scandalous that she should like this older man that has come to town, and it's gotten her kind of all like romantically excited and sexually excited. And so out of this moment, she hears this woozy, jazzy, saxy, Angelo Badalamenti song. And she just kind of loves it because it reminds her of him. And she starts dancing by herself. So you know what that scene's really all about, Darren, right? Right. (laughs) Right. And I guess what I like about it is it's another example of taking something that could be explained in plot terms and instead explaining it purely in like visceral terms. Like I have to imagine given everything we know about the production of of television, it must be interesting to say, all right, like we're going to express this. Like you just go over in the corner and like dance for a second. And it just creates something that's so intense and so memorable. I love because in that scene that introduces one of the most important elements of any Twin Peaks drinking game, which is she specifically says, do you like coffee? (laughs) Agent Cooper loves coffee. And as we'll we'll discuss, Jeff, it's really all coffee and logs. That's the core of the Twin Peaks mythology. (laughs) You know, the famous behind-the-scenes story on that is is that when Sherilyn Fenn showed up to shoot that scene, it was actually supposed to be a total dialogue scene. And David Lynch surprised her on the set by saying, I'm ripping up the script and we're redoing this whole thing. And I've we've written a song and we want you to dance to it. And Sherilyn Fenn, who apparently does not dance, freaked out. And Lynch and, and Sherilyn kind of like figured it out in the moment. And a lot of that is just like worked out that second on the set. And we're seeing the results of that in that scene. That's incredible. And again, I I can understand why television and certainly a TV show airing on a broadcast network in 1990, I can understand why it couldn't all be like that. But th- th- there are, I guess that's what is interesting about this show. And I recall that I, I think it's one element of it that's so interesting is it's not necessarily a pure distillation of David Lynch so much as it is David Lynch sort of almost like pushing through what at the time was the most, you know, impenetrable cultural boundary of kind of, you know, sameness, the idea of the broadcast network drama. And so the elements of him that that shine through in the show are just so compelling, which means, Jeff, we, we need to talk about, I, this will not be a full hour long dive into the dream sequence at the end, but I do want to talk about that because that to me... Just even coming off of the pilot, the sequence at the end where we see Agent Cooper curiously aged in a room that we will come to know and love and be tantalized by, that is maybe the moment that looms largest on this show. Like, I don't even know, like, where to begin here. It also involves dancing. It involves lots and lots of red curtains, which, you know, next to logs and coffee are going to be the most important element of the mythology. But what kind of jumps out to you about this scene, having watched it and dissected it so much, Jeff. You know what's funny about it is that this is going to shock you given what you know about me, but I don't think that I've ever deconstructed that scene and tried to analyze it moment for moment. Now, granted, I was falling in love with this show in the era in which doing that kind of analysis was really hard. Yes, of course, I did tape record on my VCR every single episode of Twin Peaks and watched every single episode at least three times before the next week's new episode. (laughs) Still, this one episode, you know, what I remember vividly about experiencing that in the moment is just absolutely losing my mind over what is going on right now. Like, but delighting in that just delighting in the strangeness of it all and the tone of it all. The tone of it all saves it from being indulgent. 
You know, we've already been established this kind of character of, of Agent Cooper who's prone to this kind of intuitive, mystic, detective puzzle solving. But the whole sort of menacing, sinister tone of it all, beginning with Mike, the one-armed man, giving his little tome poem, through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds, fire walk with me. Like just that whole mood. And then going into the strangeness of the red room, which is bizarre and weird and all this backwards talking gimmick and gag, but it also has this really mournful, unsettling quality too that factors into the mood of the whole thing. That's what grabbed me first. Now, of course, what grabs me about it, having seen Twin Peaks so many times over the years and most recently for this podcast, just that how right here, right now, the show is planting a massive flag in a way that I think that maybe you don't realize when you first watch it, planting a huge flag about how weird this show is about to get, uh, at least over time and certainly in season two, planting this huge flag that, yes, this mystic supernatural stuff that Agent Cooper's doing isn't just some sort of strange character affectation. This is a real thing that's very pertinent to the world of Twin Peaks. We live in a world of supernatural possibility. These characters are being terrorized by supernatural entities and Cooper is plugging into that here in this moment. We don't realize it in the moment. It works as a beautiful piece of film unto itself, and it works within the sort of hyper-real, surreal kind of nature of this first season. But this is a huge flag that says, this is where we really want to go. And it's even a question. It's a question of like, will you let us go there? And I wouldn't be too surprised if the, the creators of the show, who, by the way, had no, <laughs> had no idea whether or not they would ever get a second season out of this whole thing. According to them, from the very beginning, they wanted to go Black Lodge crazy. That's so interesting to me. I mean, you know, one of the things that we will talk about more next week is the tension almost between this urge towards going full, if supernatural almost seems like it is a too simplistic of a word, going just full mythic with this story versus telling this story as an almost oddball to the extreme variation of Northern exposure. And what intrigues me when I watch this sequence again is I kind of have to ask myself, okay, Having seen this, is it somehow disappointing that every episode isn't like this? Or rather, that every episode doesn't get to this place? Like, would episodes that come later in the series feel more complete if there was not literally a scene in what we'll come to know as the Black Lodge, but a scene that sort of touches on this sort of deeper level? And it's something that it's in my mind, and more than anything, I think it's just because, as you said, Jeff, the feeling of this of this scene moment to moment and the execution of it just works so well. I mean, the actor, uh, Michael Anderson, uh, Michael J. Anderson, sorry, who plays the man from another place, just something about his smiling face is so wonderful. And there's a way of watching this scene where you appreciate him as a kind of helper being. And there is another way of watching this scene that is much, much darker that we'll maybe get into more when we talk about the second season finale. But I do think that it's interesting to conceive of this as something that was sort of weird for the sake of just exploring the reaches of this show on a stylistic level and to consider, could this just have been a sort of bubbling up and before the show settles back down into a relatively real set mystery plot line? Um, and, you know, this is something that runs throughout the show. And I just think that, man... I, I, I've been trying to know how it played then. Watching it now and knowing that we are about to experience a new edition of Twin Peaks with Kyle MacLachlan, who, by the way, has aged much, much better than the old age makeup would have had you believe. <laughs> I find it just, it resonates on a deep psychological level. And, you know, after that, uh, the show spent a little bit of time going to One-Eyed Jack. So it, it was interesting back and forth as far as what the show was doing with its narrative <laughs> at uh, this point in its life. Let me just add one more thing thought about that, which is we have to be a little bit honest about like how that dream sequence even came about, because if you don't know a lot about the behind the scenes making of Twin Peaks, then that very strange scene was actually 
shot, all that material in that dream sequence was shot as part of a larger sequence for the pilot that was designed to be an end to the pilot that they could tack on if the show didn't get picked up and if they were just going to air it as a TV movie that kind of needed a closed ending. I believed some version of that kind of idea. The pilot did air as a movie with that ending in some overseas market. It was a key part of their financing strategy for financing the, the pilot in the first season to create a standalone movie, I believe, that could make money overseas. So that entire sequence was cut up, reassembled, and presented as the dream that airs at the end of this particular episode. So I kind of wonder if it's like Lynch was like, you know, I really loved that crazy stuff that I shot. I'm going to use it somehow. I don't care what it means. Like (laughs) we may write a completely different ending to this mystery, but we're going to use this right here, right now, because that was some good stuff. I have two thoughts. First of all, I'm sure that there's someone in France or probably the entirety of France, considers that to be the canonical Twin Peaks ending. Like, they're just like, oh yeah, that's that's the good stuff. I don't know, over in America, there were two seasons, like, b- b- bizarre. Second of all, what I like about that and what what I find so compelling about the show is as someone who consumes television and as someone who's really interested in filmmaking there became this sort of orthodoxy around mystery narratives on television that they only really worked if you knew where it was all going and if you didn't know where it was all going then you were just kind of making it up as as you went along and you know that's a big problem and you know we need to have a five season plan for everything and I do like how with this show especially there's just this sense of tremendous discovery in every direction I also love how I mean God, David Lynch seems to do his best work in this intangible space between like things being produced and not being produced. Because, of course, Mulholland Drive was initially going to be a pilot for a different show, and then he just filmed a totally intensely wonderful rounding out sequence of that to sort of make it into the near perfect film that we have now. And I just, I'm so taken with that. Since you mentioned the the one on man, Jeff, I also have to have to mention one of my favorite sort of embedded references in this show. Twin Peaks in general is not a show that is hyper referential in the way that, you know, certainly a TV series like Lost would sort of bring into the idea of mystery mythological narratives on television. But I just always am very tantalized by the fact that they named this sort of mysterious uh, seer-like one-armed man, Philip Gerard, which makes it this weird double reference to The Fugitive because, of course, on The Fugitive the main character was a fugitive from justice being chased by a lawman named Philip Gerard, and he himself was chasing the actual bad guy, the one-armed man. And I find that, I'm sure it's just a fun little throwaway thing But there are elements of deep understanding in the idea that on this show, the same character is both investigator and perpetrator, you know, like it sort of reminds me of that joke in adaptation where Charlie Kaufman's, you know, lumpy brother has written a script where the bad guy, the good guy and the damsel in distress all turn out to be the same person. And there are elements of that in Twin Peaks and how it sort of handles its characterization that I always find particularly tantalizing. Jeff, uh, just to sort of like, I don't really want to take the narrative of season one beat by beat because at past a certain point it's a lot of Packards Um, but what's good stuff that jumps out for you that maybe isn't Dale Cooper uh, related or isn't necessarily in the orbit of some of the stuff that we've talked about so far you know uh, when I think about uh, season one and I think about everything that isn't Agent Cooper and the mystery of Laura Palmer I come up with nothing (laughs) no I'm just kidding Um, other things that Back in the day, that resonated with me and resonate with me now include just the sustained portrait of grief that the show makes you sit in with Leland, with Mr. and Mrs. Palmer, and just how out of their mind, distraught, or alternately like catatonic they are, and how the first clues that really point to 
what's going on with Leland Palmer, which I think that maybe we should save until next season, kind of arrive with one of my favorite season two characters among many that kind of come in a little bit as the season progresses, which is Laura's lookalike cousin, Maddie, and a plot point that is completely lifted from vertigo. And you see this more, of course, in retrospect when you watch it again, but Leland's immediate, he immediately latches onto her way too much. And of course, when you watch it the first time, you feel for him, even though you're kind of creeped out by it because he sees this doppelganger of Laura and Maddie's played by Cheryl Lee, the same actress who played Laura Palmer. And, you know, you just kind of feel like, oh, no, Leland, like she, you know, your poor little girl is dead. Like, don't make Maddie into a replacement for Laura. But as we're going to get deeper into the show, we realize like, oh, how much she really wants that to be true and why. Uh, So watching that throughout the season back in the day, like really kind of gripped me. Rewatching it again, the character that maybe popped for me the most that I didn't care for as much back when I first watched it was Dana Ashbrook's Bobby Briggs. And, you know, it's interesting, like he just pops out for me watching this show at a time when TV is so cluttered with 20-something actors playing high school kids. But I don't know, like looking back on his performance as Bobby, you can argue that he kind of sets the standard for that. And I'm not exactly sure if anyone's really equaled it because he is charismatic. He is raw. He is just dialed in. I mean, he is so that character. Everything from the the stuff that Lynch directed him in to another sort of non-Lynch-directed season one high point, the funeral of Laura Palmer and how that whole thing goes absurdly wrong and sideways and Bobby kind of explodes. Amen! What are you looking at? What are you waiting for? You make me sick. You damn hypocrites make me sick! Everybody knew she was in trouble. But we didn't do anything. All you good people. You want to know who killed Laura? You did! We all did. And pretty words aren't going to bring her back, man, so save your prayers. She would have laughed at them anyway. (laughs) You get the weird, creepy beat where Leland jumps on the coffin as it's going up and down, up and down. And there's another sort of visual illusion that gives you a hint about what was really happening between him and Laura. But uh, I would say that the Leland and Sarah Palmer of it all, the Bobby Briggs of it all, I love the whole thing. And I know that you love some other stuff too, and I'll let you take it away. But those are the things that I, I really latch on to outside of the Agent Cooper spectrum. Yeah, I mean, like, just like Dana Ashbrook seems to have like blistering murder in his eyes in scenes where Bobby Briggs is just unleashed. And I always appreciate that as just like an actor just bringing such a like blast of metaphorical color to the show. What I found I liked quite a bit, and it's something else that becomes a sort of defining problem in some respects with season two is, as, as I sort of mentioned earlier, Lynch's best and darkest work, there are often still these elements of deep abiding cultural sentimentality. And sentimentality can be sort of a bad word, but what strikes me a lot about my experience of Twin Peaks as someone who really, really loved David Lynch as a filmmaker but had never experienced this directly is, in some respect, the show seems to be at times, this almost outpouring of genuine emotion in a way that sort of more clinical and wonderful stuff like Lost Highway doesn't bring with it. Um, And some of this, I think, is just some residual element of this show just out of general ABC circa 1990 sensibility. Some element of this show maybe wanting to be a relatively average soap opera with, you know, primordial weird elements. 
some of the romances on the show I find really beautiful and quite moving. There's an incredible sequence in the first episode between Donna Hayward and James Hurley. Uh, you know, these two people who up to this point, we've kind of experienced them as people who deeply loved Laura Palmer. There's an incredible sequence between them that is four minutes shot entirely in very close shot, reverse shot, close up where it's like a close up on James's face, a close up on Donna's face. They're talking about Laura and then they kiss and it's very clear that there's this feeling between them that is both passion and is tied directly into the you know perverse loss of their friend and of their loved one. I find their romance to be interesting and in, in some respects a sort of lost element of the show as it goes on. I also just love, I mean, to talk about two characters who are like basically never really directly involved in the Laura Palmer of it all. Um, but I, Big Ed is just such a wonderful looming figure on the show. And the way in which the show kind of builds up his relationship with Norma and this sense of just kind of swooning lost love and of, you know, these two characters who were mythic figures when they were in high school and, you know, now just they seem to constantly be so close and yet so far from each other. The way the show kind of handles that and makes it so larger than life is something that I really cherish. I mean, I I do think that one way of watching this show when it has elements like that, the elements that seem more openly, uh, if not soap operatic, then certainly more openly romantic, or to kind of appreciate like, okay, like, you know, we're so used to thinking of a show like this as something that is, as you said, Jeff, you know, digging deeper into the mystery and exploring more suspects and, you know, moving closer towards some sort of resolution. And with these characters, there's kind of the sense of like, you know what, this show could have run for 20 years and they would have been sort of in this stasis forever. They would have been perpetually about to fall in love and then not quite making it. And there's a scene between them in the episode where uh, Dale and the cops go and talk to the log lady, where you sort of see them, you know, for the first few episodes, you've thought that perhaps they'd finally be together. And then Norma goes to visit uh, Big Ed at what I think is called his gas farm, which in yeah. and of itself speaks to this show's weird recoding of kind of industrial America with some earlier, more pastoral America. I'm not going to touch on that too much right now. Save it for my senior thesis. But just the scene between them, there's something just that I find is really lovely about that. Unfortunately, that also comes with the stuff that that I'm not sure works as well. And really the stuff that more than anything seems to really lock this show to a time and place. Every time there's anything about the Packards and their sort of like plot line with buying and selling and what's going to happen with the old mill and everything, that's the stuff that I kind of lose track of. And towards the end of season one, as that comes more into play and seems to be sort of a budding up against the Laura Palmer stuff, that's the stuff that I could not tell you precisely what's happening there. And, and I have gone back and, and reread summaries of it to try and understand it. Is is there anything like that that doesn't work for you or feels kind of less compelling as you kind of dig into season one? You know, I I remember finding the whole thing rather compelling, but on the spectrum of most compelling to least compelling, I completely agree. The whole intrigue over Benjamin Horn, I guess, trying to capture and gain possession of the mill and pitting a Catherine against Josie against each other and having kind of like rival affairs with them. All of that stuff. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying about being a show of its times because this is a show quite, I mean, it is in many ways a parody of the primetime soaps of the time, Dynasty and Dallas. And in fact, the, you know, one of the marvelous little uh, metatextual things that occurs in Twin Peaks is that the characters of this town of Twin Peaks are completely addicted to a soap opera called Invitation to Love, (laughs) which kind of ironically comments on the show and the show's kind of ironically commenting on it. And together they're ironically commenting on the fact that it is one more primetime soap, albeit a very strange and subversive one at a time that is coming out of a decade in which that was, you know, the big dramas of the day. And there's some humor in that, but as it kind of gets deeper into those intrigues and it becomes all about those intrigues, I'm not connecting with that stuff 
as much as I'm connecting with the weirdness and the mystery and the textures of everything else. I would also say that in your love letter to the romance between Norma and Ed, um, you reminded me of how much I actually enjoy Nadine, crazy eye-patched strong woman Nadine and her pursuing the dream of making silent drape runners <laughs> and, and just all of her damage. And you're reminding, you're reminding me that re-watching it, I really liked her. She's like on Bobby Briggs level. But back in the day, that almost felt like too a Lynch miss for me. Like I couldn't tell if I was supposed to be find her funny, if I was supposed to be kind of appalled by her, if Lynch had kind of was being insensitive to whatever was wrong with her, like rewatching it. And I think he gets her exactly right, actually. But, you know, back on the point of what I didn't like. So, yeah, like the Packard stuff, again, not as compelling. I struggled with the Hank stuff, you know, Norma's ex-husband in prison. Well, actually not yet ex-husband who's coming back to town and reclaiming some of his criminal franchises from Leo and, and all of that. Like that kind of begins this unfortunate trend that we see explode in season two in which new characters come to town to create drama and, and it becomes almost maybe too much about these protracted special guest stars. I was never a big Hank fan. And lastly, I think that in season one, I was in all in on the teen romance stuff, Donna, James, and all of that kind of stuff. As long as David Lynch directed it, because you're absolutely right, that scene that he directs between them in the premiere and in his other episode in season one are just, it's so intense, so rapturous, so luminescent, their love and these close-ups. It's like, it's like I'm falling in love with both of them. I think I have a huge crush on James in that moment, you know, like, but when it's not directed by Lynch, I think it's just okay. And I think it spirals even more in season two. Yeah. And I mean, everything that you're talking about comes into play with the setting of One-Eyed Jacks, uh, which outside of the argument that all the really crazy stuff is happening in Canada, I I'm not sure that there's a lot of super baseline compelling things with that setting. It's interesting because much like a lot of things that'll happen in season two, it feels like a kind of variety show version of the David Lynch aesthetic in a way that is not necessarily unappealing. I mean, like, you know, One-Eyed Jacks, you have all the red curtains everywhere. You have this sort of mixture of, you know, largely populated by these sort of masters of the universe looking guys and these prostitutes who are dressed in the most elaborately eroticized dresswear. You know, these are all things that are interesting on a technical level and are sometimes funny and sometimes interesting as just sort of kind of parody of a soap opera style. But it gets at some of the issues with when David Lynch does rampant eroticization, if that's even a word, there is always a kind of romance to it. And there's this swooning, just larger than life sensibility. And, you know, when you don't quite have that same ability to bring all those tones together, you maybe get something like One-Eyed Jacks, or you maybe get something like Miss Twin Peaks. But uh, we can dig into that oh. when we get to when we get to season two. Uh, Jeff, do you can have any any closing thoughts on season one, which of course ends with a you know a great cliffhanger from the era when you didn't necessarily always have cliffhangers the moment of agent dale cooper being shot several times by the way i always forget how many times he does get shot i mean you you sort of want to say like all right like one gunshot i'd feel confident knowing that he would come back like there's a few gunshots that go off in in the in the final moments that are definitely like pretty disturbing um what do you recall thinking about that scene when you were a college student with what, with what I'm imagining is a Carrie Matheson level of cross-cut notes uh, all over your board. Uh, you know, what was sort of your take on the shooting of Dale Cooper at the end of the episode? I can't begin to tell you how much that cliffhanger completely impacted me. In the history of cliffhangers, uh, at least until... Lost, which seemed to give us a seismic cliffhanger like that, like every single season. 
this cliffhanger pretty much like defined cliffhangers for me and and meant the most to me. I was completely, I was really invested with the character of Agent Cooper and, and he remains t- today to be my favorite TV character ever, period. So when he gets shot, I'm kind of shocked, you know, and, um, and I'm a little worried, like, no, you can't kill Agent Cooper. And even though if you just give it a five seconds of immediate thought, you know exactly how they're getting out of this. But still, I was rather devastated and chilled by it. And even more so because at that time, we still had no idea whether or not there would be another season of Twin Peaks, um, whether it was going to come back. I mean, even back in the day, TV audiences kind of were keenly aware that this kind of an unusual experiment involving an unusual filmmaker coming to TV. Did he really want to do more? So yeah, like, was this going to get resolved? I was really uh, anxious. I had a lot of theories about who it was going to be. And, you know, I'll be really honest with you, Darren, I can't remember what those theories were. (laughs) Um, but, But I would say that the person who ended up doing it was not even on my list. But I don't know. I don't know who was going to do it. But I would say that it was a perfect ending to a season of TV that completely captured my imagination with a hero, with a mystery, with a romance of mystery, with maybe a little bit of the burn of mystery, and with a sense of place, you know, suffused with a cinematic storytelling style that I'd never experienced before. But it was, in some ways, the devastating impact of that cliffhanger for me kind of summed up everything that was just arresting about the first season of Twin Peaks. Literally, Jeff, while you were just saying that, and I I watched Twin Peaks season two not that long ago, I suddenly realized like, wait, wait a second, who did shoot Dale Cooper? So I looked it up. I remember now. I'm excited to dig into that or maybe avoid that entirely because there's so much to talk about in season two. A delightful, infuriating, ultimately totally worth it season of television. Uh, We'll be digging into that next week if you want to ask some questions hit us with some theories uh, tell us some of your favorite Twin Peaks moments we'd love to hear from you he's at EW Doc Jensen on Twitter I'm at Darren Franich or if you're feeling like you want to write a lot which we fully support you can email us something at Twin Peaks at EW dot com back here next Monday on a Twin Peaks podcast a podcast about Twin Peaks. <laughs>